Lime Ninjas, and welcome to episode 73 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with us from lovely La Jolla, California, is our official show producer and the brains behind our operation, Aurora. Hello, and I'm really excited to share today's interview. Our speaker has an important point to make about the unintended consequences of the use of glyphosate in the agriculture industry. It's a great, great interview. You're not going to miss it. It has so much to do with health in general, and I think with Lyme disease in particular. And I also want to mention a Lyme Ninja training the Healing Power of Your Five Emotions. It's a fantastic course. The last time we offered that online, we had 118 people sign up. So if you're interested in something like that, be sure to hop over to our website and sign up for our mailing list. Aurora, how can they do that? Just go to www.LimeNinjaRadio.com and there's a little sign-in right at the top of the page. Thanks, Aurora. And now tell us a little bit about today's Lime Expert. All right. Today's Lyme expert is Stephanie Seneth. Stephanie Seneth is a senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. She received the BS degrees from MIT in biophysics in 1968, the MS and EE degrees in electrical engineering in 1980, and a PhD degree in electrical engineering and computer science in 1985. Her research has concentrated on the intersection of biology and computation. In recent years, Dr. Seneth has focused her research on the relationship between nutrition and health. She's written over a dozen papers on topics such as modern-day diseases, for example, Alzheimer, autism, and cardiovascular diseases, analysis and searching databases of drug side effects using NLP techniques, and the impact of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health. Thanks, Aurora. And before we go forward, I just want to say, so what's really fascinating about Dr. Seneff is her approach to medicine and research. So she's an engineer at heart, and so she approaches the problems like an engineer and not like a physician, which is a much different way of looking at things. And what she actually does is create computer programs to comb through published research and then pulls together threads that otherwise might not be obvious on the first pass or be impossible for somebody to read that many journals. And so she's able to pull together threads of information that you're just not going to get any other way. She's really using artificial intelligence to be her research assistant. And what she comes up with is absolutely fascinating. I know you're going to love it. So here's our interview with Stephanie Seneff. So I'm a huge fan of yours. Well, thank you. And part of that is, I must be your engineering background. Uh huh. My my background is I'm an acupuncturist, and yes, I, I love acupuncture. That's great. I, thanks. I approach health from, and my background before that was as an English major. So I think I approach health as a poet, mm-hmm. and yeah. you approach health as an engineer. Yeah. Okay. And engineers don't think like doctors think. They don't. I'm absolutely convinced. And so you, I mean, originally way back when I was reading your bio, you studied biophysics. Yes. What is that? 
<laughs> well, it's the intersection between biology and physics, and actually it's an extremely important topic that's under uh, studied, I think, you know, the, the physics of biology as opposed to the chemistry. You know, you hear biochemistry a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're comfortable with the idea of biochemistry, which is sort of how molecules interact and change because of their interactions, chemical reactions and things like that. But the physics of biology is really, so your acupuncture is right in there, of course, because it has to do with electricity in the body and how that works, you know, how the body supplies energy to um, all of its tissues through electricity. I mean, really, electricity is really key in the body. Um, and this really involves how it's going to set up charge differentials and get build batteries and then be able to capitalize on those batteries to get to mobilize electrons and then to use that mechanism to uh, operate controlled reactions and contain spaces so that you don't let superoxide anions fly around and damage neighboring tissues. So there's a real uh, interesting mechanism the body's adopting to maintain electricity to flow in the in the current, you know, in the wire instead of just uh, zapping the neighboring cells, you could say. Huh. And causing damage. That, that's fascinating, and I think a topic for another day. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, it could come up today because it's all connected. You Is know? It? Oh, okay. Yeah. So from there, you go into electrical engineering and computer science. What what drew you to that field? Yeah, that's <laughs> it's kind of a sad story. I was in oh, no. for a year uh, at MIT in the. Um, in, in the biology department, um, I was actually working in David Baltimore's lab, and he later on won the Nobel Prize for the work that was going on there. So um, I quit after one year. Really, I couldn't handle the lab work. I was really bad at it, and I got really frustrated, and I got married and had kids and sort of moved on. And then I went back to school 10 years later and got my Ph.D. So, um, yeah, I tried to. I wanted to be in biology, actually, but then I got into computer science because it was so... Um, it was programming at that time, you know, they, computers were just kind of on the horizon and you could uh, write write some computer code and you could really control what happened. You just wrote the code and ran it and it did what you told it to do, whereas biology is much messier, you know? <laughs> so much I liked messier. That. I liked that um, sort of rigorous uh, truth that you got out of writing computer code. Uh. Uh, very satisfying. So I, I went on and eventually got my PhD in computer science and electrical engineering. So kind of a crazy path, but... Now I'm back in biology big time, and I really love it. And it's mostly, uh, of course, reading and writing and, and then using computer science to analyze the uh, materials that I find. How do you do that? Oh, it's just, it's really great. I just love what I'm doing. Um, you, you know, you can look at data. Obviously, you can do data analysis on databases. For example, health data. You know, the U.S. government has a lot of interesting databases that are available online, like uh, vaccine event, uh, event reporting system, adverse event, and uh, similar for the drugs, drug adverse event reporting system, CDC hospital discharge data, there's these databases, and you can analyze them to find correlations, and of course, I do a lot of correlating with um, toxic chemicals, that's how I came up with glyphosate as a key factor in um, causing our crisis in healthcare today, I really believe glyphosate, which is Roundup, is crucial, it's a crucial factor. Um, and the problem is that we've been told that it's completely harmless and therefore we use it very carelessly, pervasively, and uh, we're not even measuring it. And so uh, everybody seems to be, mo- almost everybody seems to be unaware that this is a much more toxic chemical than it has been 
than has been portrayed, and it's it's the one that I've identified more than anything else that goes up. Uh, has been its usage has been going up in step with the increase in all these different diseases that we're facing today. Yes, it is one of those hidden technological problems that we've created for ourselves, isn't it? Yes, and then um, and then so what I do is I find the diseases that correlate, for example, with glyphosate get a really good correlation coefficient. Then I go to the research literature to say, well, okay, if it's correlated, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation unless right. you can prove a cause and effect relationship. And that's where the puzzle comes in. And I just love that part, uh, gathering a bunch of papers from the research literature and using, you know, natural language, truly very standard techniques in my field to try to connect the dots, uh, to help me connect the dots. So I'm working with the computer to try to dig in information out of these uh, papers, actually. You know, it's it's text, it's, it's uh, language, uh, analyzing the language of the papers to try to figure out the connections. So and that's how I then build a case for glyphosate affecting this and affecting that. You're a modern-day medical Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, in a way. It really is like solving a giant mystery, and I love solving puzzles. So <laughs> I get, I'm really happiest when I'm on, on the case for some puzzle, and I'm starting to get some clarity on how it's working out and beginning to form the picture of what's going on there. And actually, glyphosate's been a wonderful resource for figuring out human biology because it is such a train wreck. It affects so many things. Really? And then it just, things slowly erode over time. So it's y- not like yes. it, hit, it doesn't hit you like a bullet, you know, it doesn't make you nauseous or something. So you don't really notice when, you, when you're poisoned that you're being poisoned. Right. Because it's very subtle, which is a really devastating thing about it. That's why it has taken so long to figure it out. Now... <clears throat> You, I want to bring this around to to brain health. One of the things that happens with people with Lyme is many, many, many of them have diminished brain function. Yes. And you have a paper, and you've coined a term, diminished brain resilience syndrome, that mm-hmm. I think is related in some way. Now, the trauma from Lyme disease isn't a concussion necessarily, but mm-hmm. it it opens up, I think, some of the blood-brain barrier, and and if you can explain what you mean by this resilience syndrome or the lack of resilience, and what and how glyphosate sets that up, I think it'll help people understand maybe why their brain is so foggy. Yes, well, so it's a little bit complicated, and we talked about in the paper we've linked glyphosate to aluminum. Aluminum is another chemical like glyphosate that's pervasive in our environment. It's in a lot of our products. You know, it's in uh, antiperspirants, it's in antacids, it's in vaccines. I'm particularly worried about aluminum in vaccines because that's an injection mode which gets it past the barriers. If you eat aluminum and you have a healthy gut, most of it will not go in, you know. How many of us have a healthy gut, though? I know, I know. And that is a huge problem, actually, because the aluminum drives into the tissues uh, especially when the kidneys are not healthy. And, of course, we have an epidemic in kidney failure these days, too. And I've been looking into um, a subclass of people with kidney failure. Very, very interesting because kidney failure promotes uh, aluminum going into the tissues instead of being, uh, you know, expelled through the excreted. gutter. Excreted, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, excreted, sorry. <laughs> That's a better term. And um, so the aluminum gets into the brain, and of course aluminum is very, very toxic in the brain. Now I believe that glyphosate actually escorts aluminum into the brain, although this has not been proven. Hmm. It's just I'm trying to figure it out from, again, connecting some dots with some maybe less, more tenuous connections than some of the other things that I've said, because I've got papers that show glyphosate chelates uh, metals. It's a very big part of its uh, of its toxicology. Can you and explain chelation a little bit? 
Yeah, it's, it means cage, actually. So it forms a cage around the metal, um, and it, it neutralizes the charge. So metals typically have positive charge, and glyphosate has negative charge. And that, and that attracts them to each other like a magnet, right? Mm-hmm. And then the glyphosate binds to the metal and produces a new molecule that has neutral charge. You know, it could do that because the mo- molecule, they could cancel each other's charge out. So that becomes a neutrally charged molecule, uh, molecule which has very different behavior from either glyphosate or the min- mineral that it's bound to. So once they're bound, they have very different properties as far as chem- their chemical reactions and the, what they might do to this, you know, whatever they run into, how they might affect it. Um, but glyphosate lets go of these metals that it binds in an acidic environment. And in the blood system, the blood is most acidic in what's called the terminal watershed, which would be the region of the um, brainstem and the region of the uh, kidneys, where the blood is sort of exchanged with other fluids, like, for example, with saliva, with cerebral spinal fluid up in the brain, or with urine, you know, in the kidneys. So you're those are the places where the blood tends to be most acidic, and that's where glyphosate is going to let go of metals that it has carried into those places. So that's uh. going to end up with a concentration of those toxic metals in the kidneys and in the brainstem. And what's remarkable is that I can see from, a, from actually from the, you'd be surprised, the drug adverse event reporting system reveals a kind of kidney failure that is, um, that is associated with all these... Uh, um, symptoms related to the limbic system, so like fear and anxiety, anhedonia. These are sort of uh, you know dis- uh, disruptions of the uh, limbic system, which is the emotional, you know, the emotions. And I think the um, the kidneys and the brainstem are both getting exposure to uh, the. I think to both the toxic metals such as aluminum, or it could be uh, arsenic or uh, ca- cadmium. There's a lot of these toxic metals and glyphosate. Both of them are going to be toxic once they separate from each other. So this is my working hypothesis, that the glyphosate is helping to carry the toxic metals into the wrong places rather than to be able to get rid of them. That's fascinating. So that's I interviewed a woman a couple months ago and she had contracted Lyme disease many years before she kind of became uh, severely symptomatic and the triggering event was immunizations she was heading she was heading off to india so the that's, aluminum that's as adjuvant adjuv- adjuv- yeah. i can't even say that word but you know what i mean right. um yeah, so now the whole yeah. thing the other interesting thing just from my point of view is the the chinese link the kidneys and fear Yes, that's very interesting. I did not know that, but that totally makes sense to me now because they are connected through this method. Actually, what I'm working out, I'm working out a theory right now. I'm working on a paper, which I is going to be is a bold paper, and I'm not sure any journal will accept it. I'm trying to <laughs> figure out how to tone it down enough so that it has a chance of getting accepted. But I'm proposing that there is kind of, um, I'm seeing two different patterns of kidney failure. Uh, in one pattern, uh, it's sort of, maybe you could call it chronic versus acute. And in chronic kidney failure, um, basically what I think is happening is that the um, uh, the blood proteins, um, such as serum albumin, are binding to the uh, glyphosate, and then they're being dumped into the tissue. So basically what's happening is that's a mechanism the blood uses to get rid of the poison from the blood. The blood has to flow. If the blood doesn't flow, you're dead, you know, and so the blood will bail, uh, carrying the poison out of the blood into the tissues in order to protect the kidneys and sure. the brain. And if that doesn't happen, then the kidneys and brainstem get damaged because if the, if the if the blood can't 
let go. Can't it isn't leaky. So you know, many many people today, especially the elderly, have leaky vessels, leaky blood vessels, which means that the albumin can can leave and go into the tissues, and then it'll get from there. You know, it goes into the lymph system, and it gets into the it gets into the brain, it gets into the skin. It causes all these different symptoms. You know, all kinds of um, of annoying, uh, you know, skin problems and uh, gut problems and brain problems and all this stuff, lung problems, you know, especially the lungs, actually. The lungs really get hit hard. It looks in, like in the data. What I think is going on is the poisons and glyphosate, I think, is a major one, are uh, being dumped into the lungs. And then you get into the pleural cavity, you know, and then it gets into the lung tissue and causes damage to the lungs. But meanwhile, the kidneys and the brain are protected. So what happens in the alternative case is that... Um, is that you have you have strong, healthy vessels that don't leak, and therefore you can't get rid of the toxin. And if you've got some way of getting exposed to it um, acutely, you you uh, you end up killing yourself actually with kidney failure, um, more likely to die from the kidney failure, along with this fear and anxiety and anhedonia and all these um, features of emotional uh, problems with the limbic system. So I think that those are the terminal watershed areas. Those are the um, pineal gland and the kidneys are the most heavily perfused organs of the body because of this issue of having to um, sort the blood out between other um, fluids, you know, yeah. like the saliva and the uh, cerebral spinal fluid. The pineal gland is sitting right there uh, next to the cerebral spinal fluid, right at the fourth ventricle, and it's able to, you know, pass different things between those two fluid systems. So, of course, the cerebral spinal fluid can get the glyphosate, too, I would assume. You know, I mean, In fact, it does show up there when people try to kill themselves with glyphosate poisoning. It shows up in the cerebral spinal fluid. You can imagine that's going to reach lots of parts of the brain. And is that what you think the mechanism is to weaken the, the brain and its Yes. Resiliency? I mean, in fact, the glyphosate, I, I have, what I feel is happening uh, strongly is that glyphosate is disrupting sulfate management. And this is something that's sort of a unique feature of my research. I've been focused on sulfate really since I started in this about eight years ago. Um, I've identified sulfate deficiency, I think, as a core um, backdrop, as a, as a, a major, major uh, disability that's linked to many more modern diseases. Um, so can you give us a sulfate 101? What is sulfate? Yeah, so sulfur, uh, you probably know, is an atom, and it's right, it's in the periodic table right below oxygen. Uh, oxygen, of course, is, is uh, vital to health, but also um, toxic, right? Mm-hmm. Oxygen is very difficult to manage. Um, sulfur is right below it, and sulfur is, it, uh, because it's in the same column, it also has a lot of great features that oxygen has as far as helping enable reactions to happen. So sulfur turns out to be incredibly important. Um, as an enabler of different kinds of reactions that take place, you know, with enzymes and whatnot. Sulfur is really, really important um, to facilitate those reactions. And uh, sulfur can be oxidized, and that means you add oxygen to it. You make a molecule called sulfate, which has one sulfur atom and four oxygen atoms and a minus two charge. And that molecule is extremely interesting. And it's one of those things like aluminum that's very common. A lot of times people are taking... um, uh, Drugs. They're taking, for example, chondroitin sulfate, you know, or glucosamine sulfate. Right. And they think they're getting chondroitin, and they think they're getting glucosamine, but actually what they're getting is sulfate. I think the sulfate is the important part of that molecule. No kidding. Yeah, and, and, and people, magnesium sulfate's another one. You know, people think I'm taking magnesium, and they don't think about the fact that they're also taking sulfate. Right. Yeah, and so sulfate's very, very difficult to transport, 
because of a property that it has, which is extremely important for the body, which is that it gels water. Sulfate uh-huh. turns water into jello. And the body wants the water in the, of course, the body, I think by molecule count, the body's 99% water or something like that, because water's so tiny, you know? Mm-hmm. Water is, of course, you know, essential for life and incredibly important. I've done a lot of studying of water. Water is an absolutely fascinating molecule with really, really interesting properties. And, um, Water, uh, there's a fourth phase of water that uh, Gerald Paul talk, talks about. The three phases, of course, would be gas, liquid, and solid. We're all familiar with those. But the fourth phase of water is gel, and that's basically jello. You know, if you look at jello, that's gelled water. Yeah. It forms a kind of what I call liquid ice. It has sort of the structure of ice, but it's a liquid form of it. And certain molecules will sort of crystallize water into that kind of a structure. And... um and so sulfate is one of those molecules that does that. And the body takes advantage of that by tucking sulfate ions all over the place, all around the vascular wall. So for the blood vessels, the body puts all these sulfates attached to these sugar chains that are attached to proteins in the artery wall in what they call the glycocalyx. It's like a, it's the, you know, the artery, you can think the artery is lined with all these molecules dangling out of it. And then you have this sort of gelled water that surrounds, encases all those molecules so that the wall of the capillary looks like a really thick slide to the to the red blood cell as it comes through. You know, it's just got, if you think of it, it's just sliding through jello rather than dangling up against all these molecules that are sticking out, which is going to really slow the red blood cell down, you know. So it makes very slick border uh, in the capillary for the red blood cell to just scoot right through with very little resistance. Uh. Uh, and that's partly because of magnetic, uh, of electromagnetic theory because the red blood cell is also negatively charged and it makes its negative charge also through sulfate. So the red blood cell has cholesterol sulfate in its membrane and that creates its its negative charge. And so when you have a negatively charged red blood cell going through a capillary with the lining of that capillary also negatively charged, you know, it gets a kind of a hydroplane because there's a um, um, repelling, like two magnets pulls the wrong way. It's repelling the walls which makes it even easier for it to slide through. And on top of that, there's a voltage drop between the artery and the vein so that the red blood cell is attracted to the other side of the capillary because that's where the um, the pH is lower, so it's a battery, and it's attracted to the cathode of the battery. The red blood cell just wants to go, you know, it wants to move in the direction that it should, should move in. So it gets sucked, it literally gets sucked down into the tissue, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It just slides right through, no problem, you know. But if you don't have enough sulfate, all kinds of things go, go bad. Ah. One is that the red blood cell doesn't have enough negative charge, so it's, not, it's more weakly attracted to that battery because it's, um, it doesn't have enough negative charge, you know. And then the other thing, of course, is that the... The wall isn't gelled, and so now you've got all those molecules dangling in there and, and reacting because the sugars, you know, sugars are reactive. And if they don't have the sulfate, actually keeps those sugars that are in that wall safe, hiding in that closet of gelled water. You know, so mm-hmm. it's really, really cool how that works. Uh, this is what I believe. Now, this is not, you know, accepted. Uh, these, these are my own theories, and we've written about these things, but it's not... Um, I'm very surprised that more people haven't sort of thought of it that way because it makes so much sense to me. Um, as far as, you know, you think about a red blood cell getting through a capillary, that's a difficult task because the red blood cell is almost as big, or even, I think, bigger than... It's, you know, it has to sort of squeeze itself through. Right. Yeah, they have to line up and go one by one, right? Then what they teach us in, and actually one yeah. one thing that happens is they become stiff. 
mm-hmm. uh, when they don't have enough sulfate. Yes. And then they, they don't have as much maneuverability. So that's another issue. Interesting. Now, here's a total aside. Do you know if this lack of sulfate and the lack of charge leads changes in blood pressure either way? Absolutely. Absolutely, and would, yes. Does it have a tendency to go up or down? Well, that's also very complicated. So I said glyphosate, actually, if you're poisoned with glyphosate through injection, which actually they did this study. I found a study on piglets, which was really interesting. And um, they injected the piglets with a glyphosate salt uh, and also with this POEA, which is a surfactant that's added. So Roundup is much more toxic than glyphosate by itself, at least 100 times more toxic uh, than Roundup, than glyphosate by itself because they put other stuff in there. And they don't, and they aren't required to test that other stuff with animal studies. It's really or quite or the combination of the two, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The combination yeah. is especially bad because the um, the surfactants allow the glyphosate to get into the cells and do damage. And um, uh, let's see, where was I going? The piglets. So they they injected the piglets with a glyphosate salt, and they found that their their initial reaction was a sh- a, r- a rapid drop in blood pressure. They lost blood, lost their you know the blood pressure dropped over the first hour, and then. Uh, I think two thirds of the pigs, piglets died, you know, eventually. Because I have a subset of patients who have chronic hypotension. Interesting. And it's That's not extremely interesting. Wow. It's, it's not enough. Doctors, for the most part, if your blood pressure is low, as long as you're not falling over fainting, they don't really yes. care. But I've been they, curious. They always think lower is better. And yes. they're like, oh, wow, you're lucky, you're lucky you have such low blood pressure. Right. So they're, that's they're, actually a U-shaped curve, I'm sure you know. Absolutely. So it's they're at like 97 over 50-something. Yes. and they just Very So once they get above 100, they feel better. Yeah. But it's a constant battle, and this is very, very interesting. Well, I think it's because uh, their body is probably being chronically exposed to glyphosate, and who knows, maybe other stuff as well. Right. But the blood has to keep dumping it. You know, so you, you get the, the the blood pressure drop because the blood doesn't have enough volume, and that's because the blood is always dumping itself into the tissues, and that's going to cause all these different um, side effects that I mentioned. You know, where, wherever that ends up going, that poison whether into the brain or into the lungs, you know, that's going to reflect in symptoms or into the skin. I mean, there's a lot of skin issues, rashes um, that would happen because that poison's being dumped out of the blood into the tissues hmm. um, and the gut too, of course. Um, so the, uh, and that causes the drop in blood pressure because the blood is uh, actually leaving the vessels and going into the tissues. You get edema with that. Yes, yes. And some yeah, of them, absolutely. That's what I'm seeing, and I'm, I, what I'm, what we're finding in this newspaper is really amazing because I'm suspecting uh, that there's a um, there's a drug called trisilol, which is harvested from the lungs of cows, and um, it's it's used in the lung to um, neutral, uh, neutralize trypsin. Trypsin, of course, is released from the pancreas. Uh, it's a it digests. It's a it's a digestive uh, enzyme. It digests proteins. And so trypsin, when it gets into the blood, will digest the artery wall sure. and therefore allow the blood to leave, right? Okay. And so, um, and then so the blood leaves into the pearl cavity and gets into the lungs, the, the blood product. So it's basically the, um, the, the plasma. I mean, usually the red blood cells stay behind or they can get hemorrhaging too, of course, right? And that's just everybody's leaving. Right. But usually the red blood cells are the last to go. So all the, all the plasma part goes into the tissues, gets into the pleural cavity, along with the toxic chemical, which is bound to the albumin, and then um, and along with the trypsin. So the trypsin is washed into the lung tissues, and then the lungs release 
this, you know, trisylol to neutralize the trypsin so that it won't digest the lung, you know, because, you know, you get a lot of lung damage if you've got trypsin attacking the lung. Sure. And what they do then, they take this trypsin, which they harvest from these cow's lungs, and they inject it um, during operations, typically when you're doing open-heart surgery. Uh, you don't want hemorrhaging into the cavity while you're doing your operation. It would be very, you know, hard. Of course. Very difficult to manage. And, of course, you think hemorrhaging is a risk. So they love trypsin. They use it to uh, protect from hemorrhaging because it puts the, uh, this, it neutralizes the trypsin. Uh, this uh, tricylol neutralizes the trypsin. The trypsin. Which released from the pancreas bef- while it's still in the blood, which then protects the blood from getting attacked and keeps the blood in, in circulation. And what that's causing in, 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 this, uh, si- in, in my studies is this killing. It, it's a toxic uh, attack on the kidney along with all these symptoms of, um, of the limbic system, you know, the anhedonia, and the, which is like complete lack of emotion and uh, fear and, um, you know, anxiety, those kinds of things are associated with um, acute toxicity in the kidney, which is actually uh, causing death. As a side, as a rare side effect of this trisylol drug, and so there, uh, there's a lot of controversy about this drug. It got banned in 2008. It got removed from the market for a year, and then I think they just felt they needed it so much. They and they kind of convinced themselves maybe it's really not, you know, maybe it's all uh, indirect and it's not really its fault that these things are happening and blah blah blah. And so they put it back on. So they're, you know, they're using it. Um, it, it feels like it's so beneficial to not get all that bleeding while you're trying to do the operation, and yet you're paying a price of an increased risk to um, acute side effects that could lead to death, which I think is because there's glyphosate in the drug, because the, the cows actually dump oh, glyphosate into the lungs. There's oh. been studies on cows that showed um, that the uh, lung was had the highest concentration of glyphosate. They looked at different tissues of the cows. Of course, the cows eat GMO Roundup Ready corn and soy, both of which are sure, surely have, you know, Tons we of don't spray. know how much glyphosate because almost nobody's measuring. But right. you know, when they do measure, they find it. So pretty scary stuff, you know. I think trisylol might might end up being a terrific medication if you just you know use organic Clean, cows, cleaned cows, it up, cows to harvest it. Right. Yeah. So. We're kind of coming to the the end of our time. I want to be respectful of your time. And can you? What's the connection with sunshine? And I know we were supposed to talk about sunshine, and we got off on all these other topics. Exactly. Um, yes. Well, so sunshine. What I believe is that sunshine uh, catalyzes the synthesis of sulfate in the skin and in the red blood cells um, from sulfur from hydrogen sulfide gas. And oxygen, so you can actually pull the hydrogen sulfide gas right out of the air, and make sulfate out of it, which is pretty cool. And you can also, of course, make sulfate from anything you've got already uh, available that has sulfur in it, in a reduced form. So the when the sun is shining on the skin or on the eyes, the pineal gland is making sulfate when the sun is shining on the eyes, which is very important because the pineal gland really needs that sulfate uh, to be able to work properly. And so. Um, and so, and the red blood cells, of course, need the sulfate to be healthy. So I really, really believe in sunlight exposure to the skin. It's far beyond the vitamin D. The vitamin D, in my opinion, is just a mechanism the body uses to signal to the body that um, that sunlight was received or that you've eaten something that should or- ordinarily would have vitamin D and cholesterol sulfate in it. If you ate something that was naturally um naturally had vitamin D, you know, like if you ate seal blubber, for example, which probably has lots of vitamin D and lots of cholesterol sulfate. Right. 
uh, the vitamin D becomes a signal that says, okay, good, we've got cholesterol sulfate, or it's saying, okay, good, the skin is working, because this enzyme that makes the sulfate is very vulnerable. It has a, it's a, what's called a cytochrome P450 enzyme, and those enzymes are very vulnerable to attack by various toxic chemicals. And I think that both aluminum in sunscreen and the glyphosate are going into, so for example, the glyphosate could be, uh, in sweat, you know, because the body often re, uh, gets rid of toxic chemicals in sure. sweat. So you've got glyphosate and aluminum in the skin, and the sun is shining, and then, uh, but you, uh, the, the sunscreen is preventing, you know, is already interfering with your ability to make sulfate. And on top of that, the aluminum is going to disrupt the enzyme. Oh my goodness. So you're pretty screwed. So basically the, uh, I mean, people are in a mess, I think, right now. So, uh, you know, skin cancer has been going up uh, alarmingly in step with a, more and more use of sunscreen. You know, right. it's almost a very good match between the use of sunscreen and skin cancer. I don't understand why someone's not saying, hey, what's wrong with this picture? Because the sunscreen is protecting from skin cancer. Why is it going up, you know? Mm-hmm. And God and knows people, everybody uses it. Yeah, people are so obsessed with sunscreen yes. these days. And that might be, it might be the case. I, I mean, there's uh, Anthony Samsel says that, and I believe him. He's, Anthony Samsel works with me, and he's really smart. He's a chemist and a toxicologist. He has, a, he knows a ton of chemistry. And he says that uh, from his studies, glyphosate um, reacts with the sun to produce a more toxic form of glyphosate. And this is also because the skin releases nitric oxide, and then glyphosate reacts with that and produces a uh, a product that's a, a really bad carcinogen. Um, so it's possible that. Um, you're really caught between a rock and a hard place. If you've got glyphosate in your skin and you're exposed to the sun, then the glyphosate's going to be toxic. If you put the aluminum-containing sunscreen on your skin, then the aluminum's going to be toxic. I mean, you're basically, you know, the, the sun is vital for health, and we've done such a good job of wrecking it, but I don't know how to get from here to there, you know? <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. One of your messages is the GMO is, from your point of view, we haven't even talked about if the genetic messing with things is good or bad, but it's a signal that glyphosate is used, that Roundup is used in the harvesting and growing of these things. And and so that's almost, at this point, this is, this is an immediate issue as opposed to, you know, we don't even know what the genetic stuff is doing. So from your point right. of view, it's, it's the Roundup. I totally point. believe that. I mean, I don't know how toxic the GMO is by itself. I certainly don't think it's harmless. Uh, but I think it's a very messy question, and for me, it's much harder to answer. Yes. For me, it's very clear glyphosate is toxic, very okay. clear. And um, and it's very clear that the GMO foods have a lot more glyphosate than the ones that aren't GMO, yep. even when it's the same crop. Like, cause there's a study on soy that looked at GMO, non-GMO, and organic, and they'd used Roundup to control the weeds in the non-GMO soy, but only the GMO soy had high uh, levels of glyphosate, which were higher even than levels Monsanto had said would be unusually high. Hmm. Um, were found in 70% of, well, I think 100% of the, of them had um, all of this, ten, there were 10 samples of each one, and all the samples of the GMO soy had glyphosate in them, and 70% of them had glyphosate above this, this level that Monsanto had indicated would be unusually high. Right. And none of, they didn't detect any, every, the glyphosate in the uh, other soy was below detection level hmm. in the non-GMO soy. So if you buy non-GMO, you're already getting uh, a lot better than buying GMO. Uh, we buy only organic when we go grocery shopping in this household, you know. I think organic is your best choice for sure because they can't use glyphosate. doesn't mean it won't be in the in the food. Organic honey has glyphosate, you know, because you can't 
You can't. You There's can't. glyphosate everywhere, so it's very, very hard to avoid. But you can't apply it to kill weeds if you've got an organic crop. Right. Like we have. Uh, I live in central New York, and I have neighbors who are dairy farmers. Across the street, there's an organic dairy, and uh-huh. up th- up the road, there's a conventional dairy. And uh-huh. they have side-by-side fields, and yes. the requirement is a 10-yard buffer. Wow, and that's not adequate. It's Right, so there's going to be some spillover. But like you right. said, if, if the more, the non-modified, the GMO seeds and plants are designed to work with the Roundup. They right, were, exactly. they were they developed hand in hand. So it makes sense that they absorb it more. It, I have, I feel for the farmers because a, a blight can come through or an insect can come, come through and just wipe your crop out. So you, it's, it's easier to spray and they don't want to spend the money on this stuff, but it guarantees it's like insurance. They're buying themselves insurance. But at, but at the same time, you know, it's it's wrecking the world. It's it's not a it good is. way to go. And I I do have sympathy for them. And it is harder. You know, they've been farming this way for 40, 50 years. Their grandfather did. Their father did. They do. I and to, to learn new things like, you know, we're really we're all old dogs. They're learning. <laughs> yeah. They're learning old things. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's so sad that we it's only been, you know, really less than 100 years probably that we've done agriculture this way. And yet it feels so entrenched that we can't yeah. imagine doing it some other way. And we just have to change that. You know, I have friends who are working hard on trying to figure out how to grow organic more effectively. And a lot of it is just rejuvenating the soil. We've oh. collected the soil and the soil is getting ruined. And every year... The soil gets worse. Yes. And then you have more and more problems with blight and all these issues exactly. of other problems. But then you have to dump more chemicals. It's just a chemical warfare that we are bound to lose. Yes. And it's yes. Here and, we're losing it. And, and we just keep adding more and more chemicals. Right. Uh, it's a disaster. I mean, it's going to be, I just am really very glum about the future of the United States because we are so enamored of these chemicals, you know? Well, it's, it's the same thing. I go to the doctor, well, not that often, but when I do, they, I'm f- almost 52. They say, okay, what medicines are you taking? And I say, none. And you can see their minds just reeling. They say, wait a minute, that's not possible. What medicines <laughs> are you on? It's really incredible because I'm looking at this database and you have these people and they have like 30 or 40 exactly. uh, medicines taking. And I'm just like so blown away. I also don't take any. So I, and it's, very unusual. I feel like we're in a very small percentage of the U.S. population. We consume fifty percent of the world's um, pharmaceuticals in yeah. this country. Yeah, it's it's we're so enamored of medicines. I don't understand how we can possibly believe they're working when you look at our health record. You know. Well, it's but it's the same thinking as the farmers. They're like we'll just add another one till we get there. Yes. Yes. Right. Doctor Seneff, you've been very generous with your time. I want to leave you with uh, the last word and if you had three suggestions for people to help with their health particularly brain health what what would they be okay um certainly eating foods that are high in cholesterol and saturated fat um i think those are really really healthy foods for the brain and high in sulfur of course because that's needed to make the sulfate and the sulfate is really crucial in the brain and um and then the uh, that, so I don't know if you want to count that as two. Eating organic. Okay, we'll have one is sulfur. We'll give you a bonus. Bonus one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, one is eating nutritious food in terms of having high cholesterol, high saturated fat. And this means, of course, seafood, uh, organic eggs, you know, these kinds of things, and um, and high sulfur. 
And then two is getting a lot of sunlight exposure to the skin and to the eyes. And three is eating 100% organic whole foods if you can. I mean, that's obviously impossible because you go out, but try to aim towards 100% organic whole foods. Those would be my three. Fabulous. And if people want to read more about your research or learn more about you? Uh, yeah, I have a website. Um, it's rather plain, but it's a lot of material on there. It's uh, it's not easy to remember. People, P-E-O-P-L-E dot C-S-A-I-L, C-S-A-I-L, that's my lab, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, dot M-I-T dot E-D-U slash S-E-N-E-F-F, my last name, Senef. So I have a bunch of stuff there. And you can also Google my name. Luckily, I have a relatively rare name, so there's a lot of material. You'll find things like this interview, <laughs> so we hope. <laughs> so. Terrific. We'll make sure we have all those links on my website as well, so Great. people can just you. power over there and click away. Thank you so much. All right. It's a have pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was a really great interview, but I have a question for you. Okay. You have mentioned several times, first with um, Greg Lee a couple episodes ago, and now with Dr. Sanif, that you really think that engineers have a different approach to health than physicians do, but you've never really gone into what you think the differences are. Well, let's see if I can put it into language because I'm not 100% sure I can, but let's give it a whirl. And I think it comes down to how they were trained. Doctors have a different background. They're trained differently when they go through their residency. In, even in terms of research, too, the, in the biology field, an engineer just approaches a problem with a different mindset. They don't have the prejudices that uh, a biologist or a physician or a physician researcher has. And so they come at it with fresh eyes and they come at it. How do I want to say it? It's, it's hard to describe Aurora, but they, they, they approach it. Maybe it's, maybe it's more complex. I think one, one of the problems with medicine is that it's been seduced by its own success and particularly the success of antibiotics way back when. Uh, Mm -hmm. and the story really, focuses around syphilis. And when they were looking for syphilis, there were, and I forget the names, I have to apologize here, the names of the doctors involved with this research. But there was there was a man doing research on staining different bacteria, and then there was the man doing some research on syphilis. And they got together and they kind of got this idea, well, if stains, if you can get a stain to make certain bacteria color, so if it's a gram-positive bacteria, if it stains positively, then why can't you get a drug in there that only targets the bacteria? And so you get this silver bullet idea. So in with medically trained people, there's this idea that you want to find the one magic bullet. And mm-hmm. I think that okay. subconsciously influences a, a lot of their thinking. So if you back up, you get more people like Dr. Horowitz who says, well, we've got these 18 different things that can be affecting health and you really have to change the way you think as a physician. And I think that's really what an engineer does is they can look at a problem and see it's from multiple sides. So they're not trying to narrow down and rule out different things to get to the one true thing. They're more 
comfortable with ambiguity and with tolerances and we're not getting things a hundred percent right but close enough so it's it's just slightly different so i hope that wasn't too much of a rambling answer it's it's hard to put into words but when i listen to someone like dr senef and i'm interviewing her she doesn't think like a biologist she thinks like a computer programmer and it's a it's just it's a fundamentally different way and i don't know if i did a good enough job explaining it but that's the difference i find it very refreshing they come up with novel approaches to the problems we're facing and that's what we need with lyme disease we need people thinking outside the box not inside the idea say box okay not or or rather not inside the magic bullet the silver bullet box well, that too. I mean, I think we're all looking for, okay, if I take this one herb or this one uh, formula or this one antibiotic is going to kill off my Lyme. But boy, you know, I've yet to find the one cure for everything, no, no matter what, you know, whether bee venom's hot right now, cannabis oil is hot right now. Theirs are all very, very useful tools, but they're not going to be 100% successful. It's the human body we're dealing with. Nothing is 100% successful. The only things we can be guaranteed with with the human body is that someday we'll die. And on that, and on that And note. on that happy note, <laughs> moving <laughs> right along. Note. Yeah. So if you need more Lime Ninja in your life, visit our website, www.limeninjaradio.com. There you can find all 72 past episodes. We're starting to build up quite a library there, and we archive them. You can get them on iTunes, so go ahead and like us on iTunes and leave a comment, and there you can go back and listen multiple times and really pull apart what Dr. Seneff and our other experts have to say. All right. On the website, speaking of getting back to the website, you can also sign up for the Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Lime Ninja Brain Fog cheat sheet as our thank you. Yes, we do thank you for listening and signing up for our mailing list. And I've been sending out uh, what I call Five Star Fridays once a week. There are five really short bits about Lyme disease and things in and around Lyme disease. And they're, they're fun. I have fun putting these together and people seem to like them. So go ahead. If you get on the mailing list, you'll get the, the five star Friday. And if you're listening to Lime Ninja on iTunes, please, please, please take a minute, rate us, leave a comment. It'll help other people find the podcast. And last, this episode would not be complete unless we left you with the very, very important Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know the Beatles song, Help, was written after they met a ninja? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.